so I met Julia um, years ago because she did a uh, fundraising speech <clears throat> at, for Berkeley High uh, for the group that was um, for environmental, um, the environmental small school within the larger school. And I, when I say I met her, she was coming in to talk at St. Joseph's Church, and it was going to be really packed, but she walked in, and she walked next to me, and she just came up and said, Hi, how are you? And, and it was the most beautiful, and I went, Oh, my God, you know, and just a wonderful, very warm spirit. And then I was totally inspired by what she had to say, and I was a teacher, and I taught English as a second language to adults, and I felt like they needed to have paper, something written to go home, and we weren't, we've never been allowed to let them take home our textbooks. And so um, I used to give them paper and different paper things, you know, to learn nouns and verbs and whatever. And it really made a difference after I heard your talk. I thought very seriously before I would duplicate 40 copies of a piece of paper. So that was a good influence. And then my school went on to design an entire environmental project to teach immigrants about recycling and everything. And then the school exported the project to uh, the, into all the adult schools in California. So you made an impact. <laughs> and uh, I'm so thrilled that you're back and that you were here last week. And uh, I know everybody else is too. So um, thank you so much. I think you really make such a contribution to us all. Thank you for that generous welcome. Thanks to all of you. Number one, just for being. Number two, for those of you who were here last week and those of you who were not, I am always, always present to what a sacred gift our time is. And so I hold it deeply that you all choose this evening to share the sacred resource, the sacred gift of your time with one another and with me. And I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share with you this evening. It touches my heart deeply and I'm very, very grateful. And I'm also present to the gratitude of the lineage that has brought forth the practice of meditation into the world as a way to try and help create peace in the world through also creating peace in the inner landscape, in the inner world, so that we might more fully embody what peace looks like and feels like and is experienced like in the world. So I'm just present to a lot of gratitude and a lot of respect, and so thank you all so much. It's a total joy to be with you all again. And it was a funny night already. I, in meditation, I just had to keep being careful because I almost just kept busting out with laughter. And uh, for me, the reason why is I was, I was talking with James before, after last week, about this week, about what to share in a way that builds upon our time together last week. And, and I was asked to come and share with all of you to just really reflect what I know we all already know, that... I feel my experience has taught me that everything we need to know is already within us and in the world to which we are connected, the cosmos to which we are connected. And all there is is blocks to that knowing. 
And so there's all kinds of tools that we all can utilize to help uncover those blocks to that knowing. One of those practices, one of those tools being meditation. And so I know that when I share, I'm really, I'm not saying anything new. <laughs> I'm just doing my best to remove the block of myself, which can sometimes be quite huge, to remove the block of myself out of the way so that whatever comes through is an authentic sharing of what we all already know. And that different things that I might share will resonate in different ways for different people in this space. But my goal, my heart's desire is just to speak into this space what we already know, maybe in a new way so that it becomes realivened within us again. Sometimes things that we know get a little stagnant. Sometimes, especially for me, the line between incredible passion and fundamentalism is really close. <laughs> You're laughing too. <laughs> and fundamentalism is a stagnant knowing, and we do not want stagnation because nothing in the natural world tells us that stagnation is healthy. Everything in the natural world of which we are a part tells us, teaches us that things in motion, things in interrelatedness and interrelationship, that's where the life is, that's where the thriveability is. And so I feel that when I share, my goal is to just to reflect what's coming through in an unattached way. And, and my prayer is that somehow it will reflect something that each one of us in this room already knows and maybe aliven it a little more, bring it forth in a little bit more clarity such that we leave this space more excited, more inspired, more lit up and on fire to make a difference in the world and be a contribution to this world of which we're a part. And that's what really generates me into getting in front of groups and sharing. But the reason I was laughing was because I had talked to James about the last week sharing was about this concept around spiritual activation, different than spiritual activism. Spiritual activation being recognizing that every breath is a miracle and then asking ourselves, what do I want to do with the miracle of this breath, this breath, this breath? And how do I activate that gift, that miracle, every choice, every moment of every day? So that was kind of the beginning conversation for last week. So I was talking with James about well, what, what might be a good continuum of that conversation this week. And so what we thought would be good would be looking at what are the kind of things that hold us back from this knowing, that hold us back from really stepping powerfully into service, really stepping powerfully into our lives? What are the things that might block us from the divine joy and the divine inspiration and the divine hugeness of who we are that is all of our birthright? What are the things that might hold us back or block us from that? And so one of the things that we were talking about is that one of the big blocks is our addiction to comfort. I'm not alone in that one either, am I? <laughs> because it's like, oh, this is really comfortable. I don't think I want to let go of that. And sometimes even the things that are comfortable are things that are actually highly destructive in our lives. And we even know that. But there's something so comfortable about that destructive way of being because I know that. And I don't know how to not be that. And so there's this draw of the comfort of things, even when we know that it's really unhealthy for us. And so we were talking about this within the framework, obviously, of meditation, because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in the room who, in the meditation practice, sometimes gets uncomfortable. 
I don't know, I might be the only one, but uh, you know, there's, but we know with this practice, those of us who practice it, we know that there is a power, there is a bliss, there is an incredible clarity that can come from being with what's uncomfortable instead of running from it, resisting it, trying even to change it, just being with what's uncomfortable, noticing it and seeing what opens up from that place. And yet in our lives and in the world, when it comes to really stepping up our contribution and really being the gifts that the world is is calling and begging for us to be, oftentimes what holds us back is our fear of losing our comfort. What am I afraid of losing? And there's that great line from this song, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. When we are willing to give up 100% of our lives to loving, joyous service for no reason other than that, the fear that holds us back begins to unwind its grip, and we find that we find more freedom. But first, we have to be willing to go into the uncomfortable zones and be with it and notice all of the ways we are addicted to comfort. And it is an addiction. Because addiction is something, and I am a former addict, so I know that of which I speak. Addiction is this behavior that causes harm to us, but we will defend it. Nothing's wrong with me. Something's wrong. What's wrong with you? Why are you saying something's wrong with me? I'm fine. I got it under control. You just don't know. You just, you're just too controlling. You're, you know, I had all that kind of conversation in my past. But we do that around all kinds of ways in our lives. We behave that way. We have this addiction to comfort, and it makes us do things that are bad for us, that are really, really, really unhealthy for us. The addictions to comfort that has us eat fast food takeout in high amounts of disposable products and packaging, really bad for the planet, really bad for our bodies. But we are addicted to it, and we will come up with an excuse of, well, I was in a hurry, so I needed something, right? So we have these ways of being that wear a little bit nicer mask than my, like, addiction to cocaine that I used to have, hardcore addiction. We could point that out, like, whoa, that, that's intense, Julia. You were, you know. I'm like, yes, I was addicted to cocaine, and thankfully, I'm not anymore. And yet, technically, if we look at the kind of ways that we have addictive behaviors in our life, we see that it has, it causes very real harm to ourselves, to the planet, and sadly, more often than not, to future generations. And so it is future generations who actually bear the brunt of our addictive behaviors and patterns, worse even oftentimes than we do. And so this was one of the things that I was talking with James about, like looking at how our addiction to comfort, our fear of being uncomfortable, how that holds us back from really stepping up and stepping boldly out into who we're called to be. And of course, though, one of the things we were talking about last week is, you know, what you look for is what you get. 100% of the time, whatever it is you look for is what you get. Any of us ever get up on the quote-unquote wrong side of bed in the morning (laughs) and we're grumpy? And even a cup of coffee or tea doesn't solve the problem. And it's like, ah, she's one of those like fussy baby kind of days. And if we keep on the glasses of grumpy bad day, we're going to get a whole lot of proof 
throughout our day of why we're right in being grumpy and the world is wrong in making us feel grumpy. And then, but if we can do the kind of mindfulness practice of like going, okay, I'm having this grumpy experience, but it's just a sensation, it's just an experience, I don't need to be attached to it, I can transform it and I can then go out and look for things to be happy and joyful and blissed out about and, and I will get that. But because I chose for one of my conversations tonight to be about addressing comfort and being uncomfortable, I got to practice it on the way here. <laughs> Which is why I was almost like laughing in the meditation practice because of course, if I'm going to talk about it, the universe is gonna say, girl, you are gonna test yourself first. <laughs> Don't think you're gonna get up in front of these people and go la 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 like you know something unless you're gonna go through the gym of uncomfortable first. <laughs> So I got to go on the gym of uncomfortable and exercise those muscles. <laughs> the universe is funny. Thank goodness. Whew. So I'm finding out my, my public transportation here. I've been joyfully car-free since I was 18 years old. And uh, so I, it's something I enjoy. It's something that I love. And and I do know that practicing being car-free and doing things like public transportation sometimes means there's going to be some challenges. But I've learned to pretty much embrace those challenges over time. And yet still there's those sometimes when it just kind of catches you just the right, wrong way and kind of trips you up. And then it's just like, So I know with the buses... You have to be at the bus stop a minimum of 10 minutes early, even though sometimes they don't show up till 10 minutes late. So you might be sitting waiting for the bus for 20 minutes. You've got to get there at least 10 minutes early because they might come by 10 minutes early. <laughs> and if you go at the bus stop the time that it says that the bus is going to stop, the likelihood that you're going to get your bus is not super high. So I've learned over time that it's totally cool. I just plan expand the time in my life when I'm using public transportation. And normally I would ride my bike a lot of places because I love riding my bike, but part of the reason I'm in the Bay Area is because I tore the ligament in my knee and I'm not actually allowed to ride my bike yet. I'm in the physical therapy of retraining my body how to work together as a team. So I'm not allowed to ride my bike yet. So I'm taking public transportation. So I do what I know to do, which is get there 10 minutes early. And, I, and I'm, I've got it all planned. I have up my bag and everything I need right next to the door so that the minute it's the time to walk out, I'm out, I'm ready to go. I am um, walking up to the bus stop and was there actually 11 minutes early. And the bus is a block and a half ahead of me down the road. And that's one of those moments where it's like, even though I know it's public transportation and I have to have gratitude for the fact that it runs at all, which is oftentimes a miracle. Uh, there it is, right? I can see it. I'm like, and of course, now this means if I try and wait for the next bus, I would probably be late for our gathering here this evening. And my commitment in my life is my word is my bond. My word is actually all I have. This body will disintegrate at some point. Everything I own will disintegrate at some point. My word and my actions following my word is my legacy in my life. It is all that I have, and that is a practice for me. So I cannot, in my practice, be late for something, even if it's just to sit and be still and be quiet. In my 
in my commitment, that would be out of integrity to be late and to, to not be here on time. So now I'm having to figure out, you know, what's the next process? And so I'm going through my mind, okay, well, how far exactly is it? And because I'm hobbling, how much longer will it take me to get there <laughs> if I was in full health? And I, luckily, I just decided, you know, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to trust that I'm going to make it on time and I'm going to walk. And so that's what I did. But of course, for, I, did, I actually had my physical therapy practice today. I had to go to physical therapy. So my leg was actually more sore than normal because I was put through the intense routine. So my knee is actually a little inflamed. So the first little while, I'm trying not to be off. But my knee, for sure, is going and various stages of noise and conversation about how wrong the public transportation system is and how right I am for being mad at it. So that was, <laughs> that was my like, first practice that like, being with the uncomfortable in the space of and in the stand of my commitment. To, my stand of my commitment is to walk as lightly or to ride as lightly on this earth as I possibly can without, without expectations of perfection, but just with a commitment to walking or riding as lightly as I can. And then my second commitment being one of integrity, that if I give my word to something, I do everything within my power to have my actions meet that word. And so after enough repetition of ow, hobble, ow, hobble, ow, hobble, uh, the conversation in my head began to shift, and I just started looking at it. Well, this is just perfect, because I had this aha of, oh, right, I was going to come here and talk about being uncomfortable, so here I, I get to just practice it in the gym on the way there. <laughs> And the great thing was then in that moment of aha, my mind switched its perception of the experience, which we know is part of the gift of meditation as well, of just having the experience, noticing the thoughts, noticing the sensations, but not being attached to them. And then in that process, bringing a new awareness to it, and through that new awareness, beginning to see a shift in how we think and how we relate to our thoughts. So I actually got to have part of my meditation practice right on the way here, which was just perfect. And then what was even better, the icing on the cake, was once I had my shift in my thoughts and awareness and I'm walking down the street, I'm noticing that the people that I'm passing are responding to me differently than when I was in my moaning, <laughs> my moaning upset stage. Like, I was still smiling because I try and be nice and smile, you know, but I, underneath I had that, like, feeling. And the energy of people reacting to me as I was walking down the street began to shift as my awareness began to shift, even though I, didn't, I wasn't frowning on the front end. I'm very good at this part. Internally, whole other conversation. But as my internal conversation shifted, the outward interactions I was having with people on the way here began to shift. People like, were stopping and smiling and saying, hi. Like They didn't say hi before. They might smile, but they didn't say anything. And then as my awareness shifted, the interaction shifted. And then to top it all off, right as I got very close to here, here I am here to talk about being in service in a way that transforms the relationship to ourself, to our community, and to the world. And my phone rings, and it's my dear friend Colin Bevan, who is also known as No Impact Man. And he spent a year of his life seeing how light of a footprint he could make on the planet, living in New York City, married with a child on the like eighth floor, which meant that he ended up phasing out using eleva elevators out of his life, which meant that he phased out using disposable diapers, that meant like you name it, he began this process of phasing out 
the negative impact things in his life to see how light of an, imp of an impact he could make on the planet. And so that was the call that I got right, right as I was getting like a block away from here tonight. So it was like the universe just saying, shift your awareness and your reality will shift to meet you there. And so in that space, we can begin to have a different relationship with what's uncomfortable, which this practice teaches us and reminds us all the time, but then we get out in the rest of the world <laughs> and remembering this awareness off of the chair, or off of the, the pillow, out into the world, something sometimes shifts. And it's like, oh, but, you know, if I do this thing, am I going to be made fun of? Probably. Go ahead and sign up for it. If I do this other thing over here, am I going to be attacked? Yeah, probably. Go ahead and sign up for it. If I do this, am I going to risk my car? Am I going to risk my home? Am I going to risk what my family thinks of me? All of a sudden, all these fear conversations begin to enter our mind, and our actions begin to shift because that fear begins to hold us back. That fear of being uncomfortable holds us back. And yet we know from this practice, that if we're willing to go into that uncomfortable place, the miracle, the beauty, the possibility that emerges from that commitment can be quite profound. Yes? No? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs> I like to check in now and again. So that was one of the things that was wanting to come through tonight, and then I got to practice it on the way here. So the invitation in that is that as we leave these safe spaces where we practice being with what is, and sometimes what is is very uncomfortable, that we can take that commitment out into our lives, out into the world, out into service, and instead of looking for where my comfort zone is, looking for where my stretch zone is, and actually being excited by the stretch instead of frightened by the stretch. One of the analogies I use is of a pole vaulter. A pole vaulter with a very good coach. The coach teaches the pole vaulting person by setting the bar just a little bit higher than the person can go over. They don't set it so high that they set themselves up for too much failure because then they'll never stretch and reach. So the invitation of embracing what's uncomfortable is not about setting expectations for ourselves that are so high that we will never reach it because that's one of the ways we actually self-sabotage from actually living up to our potential, we will create really big dreams and really big goals and really big to-do lists and then not do them. And then we can kind of use that as an excuse. Well, that was just too much. I just don't have enough time, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, we actually haven't fulfilled on our commitments because we set the bar way too high. We can't actually stretch that far. So a pole vaulter with a good coach knows to set the bar just a little bit higher than what they can actually reach the first few times so that it causes the stretch, and then before you know it, the pole vaulter has made it over that level of the pole, and then they set the pole a little bit higher. So the same thing is possible for us in our lives, and that instead of being afraid of what's uncomfortable, instead of trying to hedge our bets, instead of trying to tiptoe around what's uncomfortable, actually stretch towards, lean into what's uncomfortable in our lives. Go on an exploration and ask ourselves, where, where am I uncomfortable? And be honest, loving and compassionate, but honest, with where we hold ourselves back in places in our lives that are uncomfortable, that we might not do in this room when we're sitting, when we're meditating, but realizing we can actually take this practice and expand it a little further into our lives. So that uh, is one of the 
wonderful themes that came through. Another one was about um, the importance of drinking water. <laughs> Another one was something that actually came up in the last week and really seems to be a prevalent one, which is what do we do in the face of grief and overwhelm, which in some ways is its own form of uncomfort, that a lot of times the intensity of having our hearts open in the world today with what's happening in Pakistan, with yet another oil rig exploding in the Gulf, with uh, the f fact that we elected someone president that we had so much hopes for and there's so little happening that was promised to us as if we should be surprised, but it still brings up a little bit of sadness and grief and in many cases apathy and feeling like it's not going to make a difference, so why should I even try? And so these, these concepts of grief, fear, rage, anger, apathy, cynicism, how do we face those and still be in service? And for me, the meditation practice, again, is a beautiful offering because it gives us the tools to be with those feelings, be with those thoughts, be with the very real physical sensations that oftentimes come from that. Fear comes up, chest constricts. Grief happens, I feel like I want to melt through the floor. Rage happens, I feel like everything in my body is clenched, including my hair. <laughs> like, so to have these experiences, thoughts, feelings, and sensations, and then the meditation practice, the tools that come from that can, be, can give us the opportunity to be with it, not judge it, not make it wrong, not try and fix or change it, but be with it, and then see what opens up. But we have to be committed to seeing what's opened up for us. Otherwise, we just notice it and go, okay, that was, that was nice, thanks for sharing. And it's good to have that practice of, oh, that was nice, thanks for sharing. But the next level of what's possible for us is to actually be committed to looking for the opening that comes through. How is it that we can be in service in the face of grief, overwhelm, rage, apathy, fear? The feeling of, I'm, I mean, if you look, Julia, we've been doing this work for a really long time and not much has changed. What's the point? <laughs> like, really? Why should I go out and do anything? It's not going to make that much of a difference. I'm just going to work on my own internal world because this I can handle. The rest of that world, I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to handle the internal world and hope and pray for the best for the rest of the world. And although we are clear in this kind of community, in this kind of practice, that the internal work is absolutely vital because we manifest externally what's internal. So it's absolutely vital that we do this work of internal healing and the opportunity, the gift for our lives is then, then take that gift and offer it externally out into the world. And for me, the possibility, the joy, the inspiration comes from being in service for no reason. Meditation gives us the opportunity to look at where we are attached and how much suffering comes from being attached, right? Is that part? Yes? Okay, just making sure, because <laughs> I know my experience is different from other people's. So I like to check in now and again. So one of, the, one of the things that meditation teaches us is to look at where we're attached and how attachment causes suffering. <clears throat> and how if we can let go of attachment, 
whole new possibilities arise, including that feeling of ourselves when we hit those bliss moments where the attachment is gone and all we do is experience ourselves as the oneness of the universe. That tingly, goosebumply, the skies part and angelic voices start going, oh, kind of feeling. That happens, cannot happen when we are attached, can only happen when we are unattached. The same is true in our lives. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> that our attachments to outcomes will always cause suffering. Whether it's in here on a chair on a mat or out in the world, the attachment to the outcome will cause suffering. What we win today, we might lose tomorrow. The other thing I tell people is we, we don't really have like the forever crystal ball. Some people have got some pretty good woo-woo juju going on where they can figure some things out about the future, but we don't have like the eternal crystal ball. So let's say we all got together as a community and we rocked it and we solved all the world's problems this next year. And the year after that, a meteor comes out of nowhere and blows us to bits. <laughs> we don't actually know. We really don't. And so when we get to the fact that we don't know and we can get excited by what we don't know instead of being afraid of what we don't know, then we can begin to offer our lives in service for no reason. And if you need a reason, then you can make a reason that inspires you in the face of everything that will try and strip that inspiration away from you. Because we create the reasons. The reasons don't exist somewhere. We create the reasons. So if we can serve for no reason, if we can serve without attachment, then we can look into the possibility of if I need something to really motivate me in the mornings when I feel like all is lost, what is a story that I can create myself for myself that's not based on attachment, but is rather based on something that just inspires me to recognize that my life is a gift, and what else would I want to do with that gift but offer it in service? And create whatever story moves, motivates, and inspires you in that moment, but without attachment. Because if we are attached, we are assigning ourselves to upset. <laughs> we are just seat building ourselves to suffering. So. You know, I like to go on a good ride as much as the next person, but I'd prefer for the ride of suffering to be as little as possible. In particular, because the more I'm able to transform my relationship to suffering, then therefore, equally so, the more I can transform the relationship of suffering in the world. And so if I attach my service to results and I don't get the results I want, it creates a suffering that I then spew and spill all over that particular cause or community that I'm trying to help which does not help at all. And if we are attached, then when we get a quote-unquote win, we get super-duper excited. But then there's so much energy around that Then when something other than what we're committed to shows up, it sends us equally into the despair, as high as we were because we were attached to the outcome. So for me, the equanimity actually of serving for no reason brings a joy, brings a lightness of bring, being, brings an inspiration and a power into my life that's not there when I'm attached. And I, know, I always know when I'm attached because I start getting cynical really quickly. <laughs> that's my mindfulness bell of I'm attached. Because <laughs> all of a sudden the cynic in my mind is like, and another thing. 
And I've got, I've done a lot of work on myself, so you don't see it too often on my blogs or in my writing or here in my talks. I've done a lot of work on the external, but if you had the microphone in my thoughts right now, <laughs> you'd all be going, oh my god. <laughs> I was even, and that was another thing actually that made me almost bust out laughing in meditation because I had this mindfulness about all of this coming through in waves. And I was thinking about how like I'm working on this peaceful way of being and being unattached and how I'm kind of an introvert, which is hard to imagine because I just get up here and start going blah, 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 blah. But I am also the girl who went and climbed a tree for two years (laughs) because I'm good at being by myself. And so the introvert in me, I realized my brain totally extroverted. (laughs) And this started making me almost laugh because I have this experience of myself as introverted, but my brain was up here just just talking up a storm. And I was like, shh, focus on the breath. And another thing. And as I was noticing that, then I almost started laughing again. So the, the mind is this phenomenal tool that we can use or it can use us. And the gift of meditation and the practice and the tools that come with it is how we can use our mind to most serve us and serve the world and serve what we're committed to. And then finally, this is the last thing, and then would love to hear from you all. Um, make sure I'm covering what I had in my thoughts. Um, oh, yes. Circling back around to freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. My experience has taught me that the more that I give away, the more that I find that I receive. on On the external plane, but on every plane, including my thoughts, including my beliefs. As I said before, the line between really intense passion about something and fundamentalism is a really close line. That I get really passionate about something and then I get attached to my particular view. And... The universe is this abundant wealth of offerings to us every single day. But I like to talk about it like, okay, I have this, this is what I believe, or this is something that I own, and then I have this, and this is something else that I believe, or something that I own, and then I have this, which is something else that I believe, or that I own, and then I have this, which is something else that I own, or that I believe, and all of a sudden, I'm really filled up, right? And then the universe is going, hello, Julia, I'd like to offer you something. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, Julia, you're a little full right now. It's a little hard to offer you something. Yes, but I really need these things, universe. You don't understand. I need this, but you can give me more. It's an abundant world. You can give me more. And it's kind of like, you know, the universe is doing that all the time, and it's like trying to pry our fingers out. Like, I have something to give you, but you have to let go of something in order to receive. And for me, I've, I've experienced that in the process of, of tools and gifts like meditation, too, that the more I'm willing to let go of the stories I create about the sensations that are going on in my body, the more I'm able to let go of the stories I have about the stories that I'm making up as I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful and meditating, the more I'm willing to let go of, the more I can receive. And that <clears throat> this is true on the external realm, especially in this country. The poorest among us are some of the richest in the world. We have so much stuff. And a lot of that stuff 
is part of our addiction to comfort that we're afraid of letting go of. And all that, all the work that we then do to take care of our stuff and house our stuff and store our stuff. And before you know it, three quarters of our day is all geared around our stuff. So letting go of some of that physical stuff allows for something new to come in. But also the mental stuff, as we know from this practice, and even the emotional stuff, like not being attached. I have my feelings of fear and grief, deep, deep, deep grief and rage and anger and frustration at the world, but being willing to let go of that when it arises too so that something new might come through. I have a practice that I invite people to do when they're feeling stuck in their life to find one thing every day for a month to give away. And I've done that practice for myself, and it was very transformative for me. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be money. It can be an object. It can be a poem. It can be whatever. But every day, make a practice for a month of giving something away. And at least a few times in that month, look for something that makes you go, oh, I don't really want to give that away, and give it away. (laughs) you don't have to do that every day for 30 days but at least a few times in that month look for something like oh i can't give that no not that yes that (laughs) give that away and see what comes in through that experience of letting go of something that the mind says i have to have that and the universe is knocking going i'd like to give you something else but you're gonna have to clear out the storage unit (laughs) (laughs) and I think that's for me is the completion in what's coming through tonight that it's it is about these gifts that we get in this practice of being with letting go being willing to look at what we're attached to being willing to look at and go on an exploration of our addiction to comfort go on an exploration of how we're afraid of being uncomfortable and go on the exploration of <clears throat> really stretching beyond who we know ourselves to be. Not stretching so far that we set ourselves up for failure, but stretching far enough that it's a real stretch. Because when we do that, we will find that we are growing into a capacity for ourselves that we did not see as possible, just as in these practices. Like when I first started yoga, I have some very intense physical challenges. I literally could not touch the floor with my hands. And I remember the first time I touched the floor with my hands, and I was like, oh, my God, I just touched the floor. And people were like, that's nice. <laughs> like, for me, that was huge, because my body wouldn't even let me bend far enough to touch the floor. And that, these same kind of tools and practices and awarenesses work in our lives as well. But we have to put them into practice. That's why they're called practice. Just noticing something is kind of like going to the gym and looking at the equipment. We notice the equipment. We can read the signs and see what's possible for our muscles and our body if we used it. It's not quite the same thing as then getting on that equipment and using it. So may this practice that you all are engaged upon as individuals and together as a collective, as a community, encourage and invite all of us, no matter who we are, where we are, what we have, what our age is, what our thoughts are, what our differences are, what our similarities are, no matter all of that, may it this conversation tonight, our time tonight, be an invitation stepping forward into really exploring what it looks like to practice this in our lives and in the world and serve in an even bigger way for no 
reason. And to wrap it, and then I think we have time for a little bit of questions and stuff. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is, there is going to be a day of collective action coming up, 10-10-10. Uh, 350.org is the easy website to go through. Um, it's a collective day to remind us that the individual work we do is absolutely vital, absolutely important, and when we take our individual actions and join them together, we can grow exponentially that good. Just as nature works in relatedness and relationships, so too does human nature. As we work together in a web of relatedness and relationship, our capacity to grow what we serve is, is even greater. And so uh, James told me that next week there will be a little bit furthering of the dialogue of what this community might want to choose to look at as opportunities to serve on that day of 10-10-10, but recognizing, obviously, that every day is a day for loving, joyous, excited, inspired, aware service. And thank you again for allowing me to share what came through tonight. So if you have thoughts, ideas, questions about anything, Hi. Hi. When I drove away last week after you spoke, I thought, why didn't I ask her that? <laughs> so here I am, and I'm going to keep coming back. But I have to ask you, two years and eight days, what was it that got you out of the tree? Oh, what got me down? Yeah, I mean, I maybe I should know. Was it in the news? But I, <laughs> It's all over the news, girl. It's in books and publications everywhere. I cannot believe you asked me that. Sorry. Out of all things you could ask right now, tonight, you're going to ask me that? I'm kidding, of course. There's no judgment attached to that whatsoever. What actually got me down was that after over two years of the company saying that, and I quote them in the press saying, we will never negotiate with that terrorist. They called me a terrorist. I sat in a tree, <laughs> and I was a terrorist, okay. But after two years of saying, we will never negotiate with that terrorist, they negotiated with me. And they, we came to an agreement that protected not only the tree, the over 1,000-year-old redwood tree that I was in, but the grove around it, uh, because trees, like everything in life, can't live in an isolation. So one tree in the middle of a clear cut wouldn't have lasted. So we protected a three-acre grove around the tree, which was how much I was physically able to protect by being there. And then I was able to come down because my work from the tree was done. And then in last year, we had really amazing news that not everyone knows about, which is the company that I was protesting, the corporation I was protesting, Maxam Corporation, got kicked out of Humboldt County. And uh, <laughs> it's nice when we have a victory. We're not attached, but it's nice when we have them. <laughs> and not only did Max Am Corporation get kicked out of Humboldt County, the company they were replaced by operates only under Smartwood Certification Forest Stewardship Council certification, which is not perfect, which is not my idea of what I would like logging practices to be, but it is currently the highest form 
of um, oversight practices for forestry that we currently have in the United States. So not only did we go from a company that doubled and in some cases tripled the rate of cut on over 200,000 acres of land, we went to a company who will only practice under the highest standards that we have. And on top of that, the first thing the president of the company did after taking over Maxam Corporation was he went and met with the activists who were up in trees, because I'm not the first person to sit in trees and I'm not the last. And um, <clears throat> went and met with the tree sitters and said, I want you all to know that you can come down because we don't cut trees that you're in because it's against our policy. But we do know that you have many years of uh, being distrustful with corporations, and we don't blame you for not trusting us, and we're going to have to prove to you. So take as long as you want up in those trees. Stay as long as you need to. <laughs> he said, we would prefer for you to come down sooner rather than later because you're on our property now, and if you get injured, it's, it's on us. So please, please, please be safe, but take as long as you need to know that we're not going to cut these trees. And then he met with groups of activists on the ground. He found two that he felt he had a good rapport with, and he gave them keys, master keys, to the locks on all of the gates of 200,000 acres of land and said, I am one man. This is a very large company. I cannot monitor every one of our plans. If you see one of our plans that you think goes against what we've promised to do, you can go check it out. And he said, you just need to call us and let us know where you're going because otherwise you could get injured or a logger could get afraid because we have many years of history of antagonism between loggers and activists there. And that doesn't change overnight just because there's a new company. And so he said, we request that you let us know if you're going into a plan so that we can notify the loggers and so that we can have one of our representatives come meet you and ground truth it. And he said, we won't promise to do everything that you want, but we will promise to actually take what you say into consideration and do everything we can to find a solution that works. And that's the new company. <laughs> Thank you for your courage. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, so. I was struck last week, so many of the things that you shared with us seem to have come from organic lessons from living in the tree. So I was just curious how much of what you know about the Dharma came from that experience and how much of it came from formal learning before and after. Great question. Thank you. I, I never had formal practice in the Dharma before the tree. Um, I had a lot of practice being angry. I had a lot of practice being hurt. I had a lot of practice being an addict. I had a lot of practice being what I call the puffer fish. And because I, I did a lot of work on myself right before the tree, which is part of why I was able to do that tree set, but puffer fish are the fish in the ocean that they're little cute and boxy little fish until you get too close and then <laughs> the spikes come out. And so like that was the extent of the work I'd done on myself before the tree. I had done enough work to like not always have the spikes out. <laughs> I'd done enough work to have the spikes be in sometimes. But for the most part, I, was, I had had a lot of practice in what not to do. Uh, and... And that was the majority of my life just because I had such an intensely hurtful childhood that my response was to just go extreme in every horrific direction imaginable. 
And um, I did do some research into spiritual practices. My father was a traveling preacher growing up, and I realized early on that that did not work for me. And <clears throat> then I was like, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. And then I had this epiphany one day that I was so angry at God that you can't be angry at something you don't believe in. <laughs> Dang! Ugh! I love when the universe does that to me. I try and go, la, 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 different answer, and it just keeps coming back. <laughs> so I did begin to kind of like stick my toes into the water of different spiritual practices, trying to find, well, what is it that I believe in? But I had no formal training other than like reading some books and things like that. So the tree taught me so much and opened me up in so many ways. And then since coming down, I've really tried to take that awareness and look to the traditions, look to the tools that are in the world such, such that I can cultivate a deepening of that, the insights and the awareness that I got in the tree so that I can understand even more and have better ways to put into practice these kinds of awarenesses that come from tools like this. Thanks. Interesting that you're a traveling preacher now. Oh, yeah. Don't, uh, yeah. I tell you all the time, the irony is not lost on me. I turned into my father. <laughs> that which you resist persists. <laughs> Anyone? Going once, going twice? You can tell me something, too. You don't have to ask. Hello. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Happened to it. Anyway, thank you so much, Julia. Um, you know what I want to ask you is, um, could you give us kind of maybe one of your favorite or your kind of high, whatever peak things about an environmental action or movement or something that that really, to your way of thinking, not only had impact in that moment, but is a model for how we can have the kind of impact that we're going to have to have to turn whatever it is we're trying to turn around. Mm -hmm. and, and then a related question, you can answer one or both or whatever, would be just sort of what's your vision of a truly effective action that truly has impact at the highest levels? Mm. Thanks. Sure, thank you. I'll go back again and say that you know, I have no claim to know what has the highest the impact at the highest level. What I do know is that the strength of a pyramid is in the foundation. And we so often look to the top of the pyramid for the power, but the strength of the pyramid is in the foundation. So my experiences of movements that have really inspired me and that I've seen real change are grassroots movements on the ground, people working at transforming their communities. <clears throat> I believe that I mentioned it briefly last week about how we, we don't know who's on our board of supervisors. We don't know who's on our school board. We don't know who's on our city or county commission and planners. And then we think we're going to elect someone into the presidential office who's going to really get who we are as a people. But we don't even know who is making the decisions that most impact our lives. So I feel like in many ways we keep getting tricked to putting all this attention and energy and resources into the big thing. And meanwhile, the foundation is crumbling. And so for me, the... 
the things that I've seen that have really inspired me have been community-based initiatives. One of them, in, one of the ones that constantly moves and inspires me is an East Bay initiative called People's Grocery. And People's Grocery changed the national conversation about food justice, which is beyond just like growing organic food and eating organic food. Food justice is about transforming society's relationship to food and relationship to who gets to eat healthy not just those who can afford to read the label and opt out. People's Grocery was started by young people in West Oakland, where at the time there was 131 liquor stores and one grocery store. Yeah. <clears throat> that, is, that right there is a sign of how much injustice there is around food and who gets it, what kind you get, your access to it, all these things. And some people jump to the conclusion, well, that's because those communities, they're all just addicts and they don't really care about their life and blah, blah, blah. And this whole really sad, actually racist conversation begins to happen. When in actuality, the truth is things like alcohol and addiction always come when people are disconnected as a former addict, when we feel unvalued when we feel we have no chance to be self-actualized, addiction is an easy direction to go in because it hurts too much to feel like we can't be who we want to be in the world. And so things like liquor stores will grow more and more and more in disenfranchised communities who don't have access to the rights, the basic rights of all human beings. Where minimum wage in the Bay Area, which is most of the jobs that are offered in communities like West Oakland, you can't even pay the rent on that minimum wage in the Bay Area, let alone buy some groceries and pay the utility bills and get your kids some school supplies. Like minimum wage, you can't actually live in the Bay Area on minimum wage. So West Oakland, 131 liquor stores, one grocery store, enough young people had this vision and said, you know what, that just doesn't work for us no more. And they reached out to friends who had yards, and they said, can we turn your yards into some community gardens? And they got enough people to say yes, and they turned the yards into community gardens. And then they couldn't afford a grocery store, so they thought, well, what's the next best solution? So they bought a refrigerated unit truck. <clears throat> and just like the ice cream trucks that have that music, doo -doo 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 -doo, well, they're like, okay, how can we really get our community of folks interested in what we're selling? Because we're not selling junk food, and we have to transform our community's relationship to food because the community of West Oakland had been so disconnected from having the option to healthy food for so long. So one of the ways they did that was they got a tag artist who spray-painted this great art all over the outside of the traveling <clears throat> refrigerated unit, and then out of the speaker system, they boom hip-hop. So they have a traveling hip-hop tag art refrigerated truck that takes vegetables grown locally in people's yards, and they've now expanded to having actual gardens. They've expanded and grown over the many years they've been doing this now. They worked with the government to be able to accept food stamps. They worked with schools to set up kiosks outside of the schools for kids to have healthy lunches. They started making prepackaged lunches that kids could have because ketchup is considered a vegetable in a school lunch. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, they then started doing peer-to-peer um, -peer mentorship because they knew that the way to trans... Like, you can't just bring in healthy food and transform a culture and a community. It has to be from the ground up. So they found young people who were inspired by it 
taught them and trained them how to do peer-to-peer -peer mentorship and education. They started reaching out to other young people. There's a whole list of young people now who've been touched by People's Grocery who, will, who have signed papers, who will get up in front of your group and say, I will never eat at a Burger King, Kentucky Fried, Taco Bell, McDonald's ever again in my life. I would never do that to my body, and I'm doing everything I can to get everybody I know to stop eating at places like that. And this was started by young people in West Oakland, where there was 131 liquor stores and one grocery store. And they now have farmer's markets, and they have trainings that the kids can sign up for a leadership training program and learn cooking skills and business skills, and that hopefully they'll bring those skills back into West Oakland and revitalize West Oakland, literally from the ground up and the bellies out. So that's one example right here, <laughs> which is a fantastic example. <clears throat> um, Another one is in South Bronx in New York, Sustainable South Bronx. A woman named Majora Carter, there's many people involved in Sustainable South Bronx, but I happen to be friends with and love Majora Carter very much. And she's one of the people who left South Bronx because she had the capacity to go get a great education. She got a great education. She didn't want to go back to South Bronx. There's no jobs. It's polluted. It's trashed. It's industry. Why would she go back to South Bronx? She had a divorce, her life fell apart, she moved back in with mom and dad to kind of like re-gear up her life and had this aha, why is it that if you make something of yourself, you leave your community if you live in a place like South Bronx? So she started an initiative to transform South Bronx. She was given a $10,000 grant and said, I need like 10 million. <laughs> and she transformed 10,000 into about $10 million and created a whole green revitalization campaign in, in South Bronx called the Sustainable South Bronx. They're creating bike lanes, parkways, greening the roofs of buildings. They're employing 100% low-income local community folks, training them up, skilling them up, so that they actually, not only are they beautifying their, their community, but they're actually getting trained up and skilled up in a way that can lead to better jobs. Um, she spoke at the TED conference. You can see her. If you go online on computer, TED Majora Carter, you can see her. She's so awesome. She spoke at TED conference at the same time that Al Gore was there. And she got up in front of the whole group, Al Gore sitting in the front. And she says, you know, I was backstage talking to Al Gore about what I was doing. And he handed me a card and said, you know, here, you know, feel free to apply for a grant. And she looked at him and she said, he didn't get it. I wasn't asking him for something. I was offering him something. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's the way to preach it. And, uh, and, and she, of course, Al Gore then called her and said, I want you to be on my committee and I want you to like be an advisor, et cetera, et cetera. And from here, maybe I'll send you a grant to, would you be on my advising team? Uh, so these are the kind of things. There's many things like this all over the world. Um, <clears throat> there's a community called Tamara in Portugal that's practicing peace from the ground up, from the inside out, on the practical level as well as the spiritual level, um, really doing amazing things around sustainable energy, but their whole community is based in a spiritual, love-based practice. It's happening everywhere. But where I see the power and the passion happening is from the ground up, that that's what actually is going to make that big change we're committed to happening is going to happen when we get our roots dug down deep and we build from the ground up. Thank you. <laughs> and now it's past time. Thank you for your time. I'm sure there's other things that have to be said. <laughs> Thank you, Julia.
it's just a real pleasure and honor to hear your contributions. And uh, now, I guess like all weeks, we're going to take a moment to dedicate the merit of uh, what we've received tonight. So uh, let's just be quiet again and offer all our blessings that we're so fortunate to receive and to share them with all beings. And that includes all human beings, of course, but it also includes all beings everywhere, all the trees, all the animals, all the 